Churches like ours have um, really so few uh, formal rituals, rites that we uh, perform. And if you've come from, you know, we have such a, a collection of people here from different church traditions and some from none. But if you come from a more liturgical church uh, situation, you come to a church like ours and, and you kind of miss some of that. And I get that. You, you definitely notice right away that we're uh, not liturgical and we don't have a lot of uh, formal rituals that we perform. So it's a pretty obvious thing. And if you haven't, uh, come from a background that's more liturgical, but you were in more of a Brethren or Baptist or Pentecostal uh, background, then all of this kind of seems quite normal to you. And um, and really the value that underlies the decision to be less formal about things is really the value of simplicity. It's a value we cherish as we seek to really just read the New Testament in a very plain way and to say what's the simplest form of church that we could have without encumbering it with a lot of extra traditions or practices. <clears throat> and when we think about that and we read the New Testament in a plain fashion, we just see that the Lord Jesus inaugurated two things, two rituals for us to perform what we would uh, call ordinances, things that Jesus Christ specifically ordained for us to practice, and those two things would be baptism, the public testimony of our faith in Jesus Christ, and the second would be the Lord's table. And the focus of this time this morning, as I said earlier, is entirely around the Lord's table uh, or the communion. And the Lord's table, really, when we think about it, it's, it's, it's so um, beautiful in its simplicity, but we would wrong, be wrong to think that in that simplicity, there isn't also something very profound going on. Beautiful in its simplicity, but profound in its meaning. And, and it's really the meaning that we want to look at here this morning, even as we practice the simplicity of the table. We eat a small piece of bread. We drink a small amount from the cup, uh, uh, grape juice for us. And we do that to remember the incredible act of sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us on the cross. We understand that the bread is his body and that the cup is his blood. And this matters because Jesus Christ has given us this ritual of eating and drinking in order to recenter us or to bring us back. Because we live in a world that from Monday to the Saturday to the next time that we're together on Sunday, a world that is very, very intent on distracting us and drawing us away from the things that are most important, to draw us away and to distract us away from who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. And the table provides us this opportunity to recenter that and to bring us back and to live our lives in the way that most pleases him. And so everything about what we're doing here today and what we do in the table as often as we do this um, is, is, um, is intentional. There's a very specific point behind it. There's heart behind it. And we want to be intentional about it here today. And in the table, there's several things that Jesus is actually telling us as we observe this, this simple Right. And that's what we see in, in the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As the Apostle Paul is writing 
to a church like ours, the church in Corinth. He's writing to them about the Lord's table because, listen now, they had messed it up so badly. And they needed to be challenged on how to properly take the table. But that provided us with an, an incredible insight into what the meaning of this table really is and how to take it rightly. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 17 through to the end of the chapter here. And you follow along as I do. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then... My brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. At the Lord's table, again, the Lord is communicating several things to us. Jesus is in fact telling me to love others. This is the first thing, love others because I tend to be self-centered. Now, this is written in the first person, singular. I'm saying I here, but I hope you understand I'm not just simply referring to myself. The hope is that you will take that first person, singular pronoun, and you will make that your own statement. And you'll be thinking about this in terms of your own life, that we're all examining whether or not these messages that Christ is communicating through the table are for me personally. So at the Lord's table, Jesus is telling me, say this for yourself, love others. Because I tend to be self-centered. I'm very certain I'm not the only self-centered person in the room. Oh, maybe I am. Maybe I am. 
But loving others, when we think about what this really is saying to us, loving others is one half of the most important thing we are told to do as the followers of Jesus Christ. Love God, love people. I mean, love God, love people for us is so important, we put it on the wall in the West Lobby. If you put something on a wall, it's pretty important, don't you think? You don't go to all the trouble of putting it on the wall. Unless it's pretty important. And then to state it in just four words, love God, love people, so that everybody can remember what it says. I'm just telling you, this is top drawer stuff. This, this is the most important thing. In fact, in a conversation that Jesus had with someone in Matthew chapter 22, a question came to him, what's the most important commandment? He said it. The most important one is love God. The second one is like it, Love people. And then he said, just so we understand how important the, the, the number one and the number two are, then he said, everything else hangs on these two things. Everything else. That's why it's on the wall. Because nothing's more important than love God, love people. So it's not surprising then when we come to the Lord's table that Love God, love people is center stage at the taking of the bread and of the cup. But sadly, the folks in Corinth, the whole reason why Paul ends up having to write this in this letter, the people in Corinth had messed that up. And Paul writes them, verse 17, notice what he says. Now, remember, this is the apostle Paul writing to them. He had founded this church. But he had not just founded it as a church planter. He's the apostle Paul. He had a special calling from Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He had special training from the Lord Jesus Christ. This vision of Christ. He had visions of heaven that he explained to the Corinthian church. This isn't just anyone. This is the apostle Paul. And so they're excited to get a letter from him. Hey, look, the apostle wrote us. How amazing is this? And then they start to read it and realize he's not happy. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. I have nothing good to say to you. Because when you come together, okay, when you have your worship services, 11 o'clock Sunday morning, when you come together, he says, it's not for the better. Not an awesome thing. But it's for the worse, he says. Then he says in verse 18, I actually hear that there are divisions among you. We think that church is splitting today and having problems. We think that's such a new phenomena. I mean, this is a church in Corinth. This is like barely a few years after the resurrection of Christ and the founding of the church in Jerusalem. And they're already screwed up. No surprise that churches get screwed up today. I don't commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, for the worse. I hear that there's divisions among you. And in fact, verse 20, when you come together... You call it the Lord's Supper. You think you're celebrating communion, but it isn't. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You've so distorted it that nothing of what Jesus intended is actually happening. And so what exactly was the problem? Well, in Corinth, they were combining something called a love feast and um, for all the Baptists in the room, it's like a potluck, okay? So, so they were having like a potluck, um, but it sort of wasn't like a potluck. 
um, because they weren't actually sharing anything. I mean, you go to the potluck, remember this? You go to the potluck, and um, how many people ever went to a potluck and you kind of waited till the line died down and then you went and all that was left was macaroni salad? How many people have ever done that before? Right? It's the worst, right? It's because like 12 different people bring macaroni salad. And so there's always so much of that. And, and so, um, but it's not like a potluck because they weren't actually setting their food on a table and sharing it with everybody. In fact, in Corinth, it was happening way different than that. What was happening was the families were coming with their packed picnic basket and then they were sitting down at a table and they were eating their own food and there were people that were there who were hungry and they didn't bring any food with them and then they're gonna like have the Lord's table together as part of this whole potluck love feast thing that they're doing. And, and some people are like hungry. Well, where's the unity of Christ? Where's the oneness? Where's the, you know, you think back to Acts chapter two and this is the thing. Here's Corinth, barely a few years after the Jerusalem church has started. Remember the descriptions of that in Acts chapter two? They had everything in common and nobody had any needs because everybody was sharing everything they had. And obviously Corinth didn't get the memo on that. They weren't, they weren't following through on what the church ought to have been. And so families come in, open up their picnic basket. They're eating all of their food. Other people are hungry. The problem goes even deeper than that. Some were bringing wine to church, drinking it, getting drunk at church. And to that, Paul says, verse 22, what? What? Do you not have, he says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And then he says this, because we're talking about love, the table communicating love. The word's not used in the passage here, and yet this, this act of taking the Lord's table is saturated with love. Remember, the command to take the Lord's table is part of those commands that hangs on those one, two. Love God, love people. Everything else hangs on that. The taking of the table hangs on that. And Paul goes on to say, Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, verse 20? Or do you despise the church of God? The opposite of love. And humiliate those who have nothing. This was the division that was being caused. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not. Do you despise the church? I mean, it should be like a no-brainer to all of us. We're supposed to love the church. And at the end, after giving all of his instructions and getting them back to the simplicity of the table, all the verses that we're going to look at in a moment, he says this right at the end. This is the way of love, he's saying, verse 33 and 34. When you come together then, I've just given you all the instructions. I've corrected all the errors you're making. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. Be patient with one another. Love one another. If anyone's hungry, let them eat at home. You're you're really famished? Eat before you come to church. So you're not tempted to then gorge yourself and leave others with nothing. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Love people. Jesus is telling us to the table. He's, he's saying love people. Love each other. Secondly, at the table, Jesus is telling me to be thankful. He's telling me to be thankful because I tend 
to be ungrateful. Now look at this. Verse 23, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. Verse 24, and when he had given thanks. You see that? When he had given thanks. Now that phrase, given thanks, in the original language, of course, the New Testament is written in uh, something called Koine Greek. It's in, in Greek. And that verb to give thanks, the infinitive form, to give thanks. Uh, I think we have this up here. Um, Eucharisteo is the Greek word. You can see it there in the Greek uh, letters and in English letters. And, and it's been transliterated into English, so it's actually become an English word, the English word Eucharist. And, and if you're from a liturgical church, of course, we call this communion or we call it the Lord's table probably most commonly. But if you've come from a, a background of a more liturgical formal church, you probably called it the Eucharist. That's just the Greek word for to give thanks. That's all it is. So it's not a wrong word to use. You can certainly use it to describe what we're doing here. It simply means thanks. It's derived, in fact, in the middle of that word Eucharisto, you can see the word charis. And that word charis is very common throughout the entirety of the New Testament. And it's translated in a bunch of different ways, depending on the context that it's in. But it, it, it means grace or gift and returning grace. And so when you think about that, before meals in your home, probably in a lot of homes here, you say a prayer before you eat your meal. And often we call that prayer grace. We just say grace. And this is where this comes from. To say grace before a meal is to give thanks. God pours out his grace gift toward us. And at that time, what we're thinking mostly of is the meal and the food that he's provided for us. And we return grace, charis, to him. He gives us charis and we return charis to him and show that by our gratitude. It's such a simple thing for us to do that, to say thank you, to be grateful people. And yet somehow, Saying thanks becomes such a difficult thing for us because it requires an acknowledgement on our part and an attitude that often we're not really that excited to make. It's so easy for us, in other words, to develop a sense of entitlement or a sense that, you know what, I've really earned this. I worked towards it and now I have it. And when we have a sense of entitlement, or we think we've really worked hard and earned something, then why in the world would I ever say thank you for it? I would have no one to thank if I deserve it or if I've earned it. I would have no one to thank except myself. And so I don't say thank you. Now that's something for you to work out in terms of applying that to people in your life. You think about your spouse or you think about your parents or you think about your kids or you think about friends or an employer or employees and just being people who are far more grateful. That's going to be a great thing if we would just acknowledge that I don't deserve the thing that's coming my way and I haven't earned it and I need to say thank you to that person. You can work all of that out, that particular application. But let's not miss the fact that in this particular passage, we're talking about being grateful to one. We're talking about our gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. The concern in this text is, are you acknowledging that you do not deserve and have not earned what Jesus Christ did for you? That that is the charis, the grace of God. And we ought to give thanks to him, Eucharisteo, for what he's done for us. 
I always think this one verse just kind of sticks in my mind. Just, it's actually just a section of one verse. But 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, embedded in that verse is this line. What do you have? Todd, what do you have that you did not receive? This morning as I woke up, if I could just start tracking my day from the moment my eyes opened, what do I have? The breath that I am currently breathing, the rest that I've just received from being in bed all night, the bed that I'm sleeping in, the floor that I'll step on, the clothes that I'll wear, the food that I'll eat, the home that I'm in, the car that I'll drive, the people I get to hang out with, the people in my family. What, Todd, do you have that you have not received? And if I can get there to acknowledge that, And all of a sudden, that should result in just overflowing gratitude on my part toward God. Because he's been so kind and so generous toward me. And so ask the question, are you truly grateful to God for what he's given to you? Or do you have a sense of entitlement? Do you think you deserve what you have? Do you think you worked hard for it and have earned it? Because when I ask the question, what do I have that I did not receive? The answer always is nothing. I have nothing that I did not receive from the good hand of God. And I ought to be grateful toward him. And it's not just words. The gratitude has to flow out of my actions and and how I approach life. So that when I actually approach the table, am I in a very tangible and real way showing my gratitude to God by the manner of my life? If the Lord's table for you is it's just a ritual, if it's just a, a routine act that, that I do as a Christian, if it isn't flowing from a heart that understands what Christ has done, And who he is. If it isn't flowing from a heart of genuine heartfelt gratitude to God. Don't do it. Don't do it. Better to not do it. Than to do it wrong. Because in fact we could default back and say. In fact if that's the way I'm doing it. It's not the Lord's table at all. Just pulling the words of Paul. It's something else. You've distorted it. You've twisted it. But that's not what it is anymore. Not if you're not coming with a heart of Eucharisteo, a heart of gratitude. Our grace being expressed to God for his grace expressed to us. Here's a third Find forgiveness. Jesus is is telling us through the table, find forgiveness. Because I tend to sin. Anyone else here tend to sin? Yeah? How many sinners in the crowd this morning? Just raise your hand if you're a sinner. Leave your hand up. I can wait until all the hands are up. I can wait. We have time. The really, really bad sinners didn't raise their hands. We all know that. 
If you have any grasp, if you have any understanding whatsoever of what Jesus Christ did for us, the point of Jesus' death on the cross, like the theological thing that has happened in what Christ did, if you have any understanding of that at all, then you'll get 1 John 2 too. The, that, that what Jesus did, it's described as the atoning, this is from the NIV, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, Jesus substituted his perfect life for my sinful life. And he covered the cost of my sin through the sacrifice and the shedding of his own blood. And by doing so, this is so important, he satisfied the wrath of God. The righteous wrath of God. That's what an atoning sacrifice is for us. And I'm afraid that we take that a bit for granted. That we give ourselves as sinners, that we give ourselves a pass on our sin. That we begin to rationalize this. And we say, you know what? God is such a forgiving God. He's going to forgive this sin just like he forgave all my other sins. That God's grace is so abundant and free and that he's constantly pouring his grace out on me. And since it's not dependent on me at all and it's entirely dependent on Christ, I'm just counting on that. And so I just go on in my sin because grace is abounding, because God is forgiving. I could justify it by saying, you know what? I'm in a room full of sinners. They just all raise their hands. So I'm just one of a crowd of sinners. We're all sinners. Let's all give each other a pass. Or worse, as I start to think about the people around me, I rationalize and I say, I'm not as bad as that guy. I know, I know, I know I'm a sinner. But there's got to be people in this room that are worse sinners than me. Amen? You don't want to say amen. <laughs> And we, pay, we play fast and loose with the Lord's grace and with his kindness toward us. We, we can be forgiven of all of our sins because of what Jesus Christ did for us. But then we need to be throughout the, the remainder of our lives in pursuit of personal holiness. I need to be like Christ because of what he's done for me. And so this is what he said in, in, in inaugurating the table on the night in which he was betrayed. Verse 24, this is my body, which is for you. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this to provide the redemption that you so desperately need. The forgiveness of your, your sins without which you're not getting to heaven. Verse 25, this is the new covenant in my blood. Knowing this, we, we should approach this ordinance of Christ intentionally, carefully, and, and sober-mindedly. And never, 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 though it is a ritual, though Christ said to do it regularly, never approach it ritualistically. There's a dire warning attached, in fact, to those who do. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. That's heavy. I'm going to always already bear guilt for my own sin, and Christ erases that, and I get that I have that. It's part of what drove me to become a follower of Christ in the first place. But having had that erased, I don't now want to have compound guilt put on top, of, on top of me as a Christian because this entire passage is addressing believers. We're not talking about anybody losing their salvation here. This is two people who actually love Jesus Christ, but they're adding guilt onto themselves because they're taking the table in an unworthy way. We have to get to the place. And I love what this one Puritan preacher said, Thomas Watson. He said this, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. The folks in the steps class heard this verse, I think this past week in their workbook. Till, listen, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. I don't want any more guilt. I don't want anything between my relationship with Christ. And so he says, there's an antidote to this. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourself. If you would just examine yourself, God wouldn't need to do that. You wouldn't be bearing the weight and the guilt of all this. Make sure you're in a good place with God before you take the table because you are receiving the body and the blood of Christ. Man, how can we take that lightly? How could we ever do it flippantly? I was talking to a couple of elders before the service and, and we, were, we were talking about this. And in a very real sense, there ought to be a bit of trembling as we come to the table. As we hold the bread. And as we drink from the cup. And if we participate in the ritual without thought, if we do it out of obligation or routine, it becomes something entirely unhelpful and actually worse, it becomes destructive and damaging to us. For anyone, verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, Paul writes, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Why would we do that? He states the consequences of this. Again, fact. Fact is, you can be a Christian and be on, have your sins forgiven and be on track for heaven and still in the daily sinning face the consequences for your sin. Please understand that Christ wipes away the guilt of your sin and guarantees you heaven, but very often the consequences of sin pursue us. Verse 30, Paul says to very real people like you and me, writing to a very real church like this one, he says to them, that is why many of you are weak and ill. That's why your life isn't blessed. That's why you've been sick. That's why things aren't going your way. That's why you're struggling. He's talking about real, physical effects of carelessly taking the Lord's table. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say, 
Some have died because they took the table in an unworthy manner. All of a sudden, now the people in Corinth are starting to think through all the funerals they've been at in the last year. It's harsh. Do you think that only happened in Corinth? The only time a church ever messed up the Lord's table, the only time that people had divisions in the church like this over this matter, the only time this was ever addressed and people were disciplined by being sick and weak and some died, the only time that ever happened was in Corinth, right? Oh, maybe that happened in Laodicea too or Ephesus, Colossae, Antioch and Jerusalem. Probably happened at some churches in Rome, Paris, London, Berlin. It's probably happened in churches in Montreal and New York and L.A. and Toronto. Barrie. Where people have been sick. People have been weak. And people have died. Because they took the bread and they drank the cup in an unworthy way. Don't trifle with God. Don't pay, play fast and loose with his commands and his kindness and his grace toward us. You say, well, I know what I'll do. I just won't take the table. That'll avoid it. I just won't ever do it again. And, and you can't, that's not an out because it's a command. It's an ordinance. He ordained it for us to happen. He said, do this, do it, imperative. So the solution is not, I'm not going to take the table. The solution is, examine yourself, judge yourself so you won't be judged by God. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. That's what he's doing here. So that we may not be condemned along with the world. In other words, Christian, God's trying to get your attention. Wake up. Hear what he's saying. Are you listening? Because it may be that there's some people in the room right now that, that you need to agree with God about this and you need to turn from your way of doing it. In other words, you need to repent and get some things straight with the Lord before we take the table. Take it seriously. and Find forgiveness in him. Here's another. Remember him because... I tend to forget. Jesus is telling us to remember him because I, I tend to forget. And the older I get, the less I remember. Anybody else have that disease? The, the, old, the older I get, uh, the less I, I remember. And we live in a world today where there's so much to remember. There's just so much. Um, we live in a world that from an information standpoint, because we're talking about remembering things, from an information standpoint, it's like a flood of information that's coming to us every minute of every day. And it's, it literally is overwhelming to us. It's like, it's, it's really, it's like an assault on our minds. How could we possibly remember it all? And we can't. And we, and we really do have to have a means to triage all the information that's coming in, to filter some of it out, to decide what's important and what's not important. And then to take the most important and lock that into our hearts and minds. 
And when we're talking about things that are most important, we can again come back to the table. Jesus said, this is so important. I want you to do this often. And it's so simple. Jesus took bread in the midst of that meal and he broke it. And he said to him, this is my body. Do it in remembrance of me, he said. I don't want you to forget. In the same way, it says after the meal, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks to God, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget, Jesus is saying, don't ever forget. When, when things are awesome in your life, when the blessing is flowing, when your path is smooth and everything is going your way and your life is filled with joy and happiness and, and everything just seems ordered and perfect. And sometimes we have seasons like that in our lives. And when your life is like that, remember, remember who gave you all of that. And when your life is the exact opposite of that, when it's hard and the trials are coming, like not just one trial, but one trial after another, when you're hurting and grieving and in pain, when you feel abandoned and alone and you don't see a way out of the dark tunnel that you're in, remember, remember him. And when you find yourself beginning to forget, you get back to the table. And you eat the bread. And you drink the juice. And you remind yourself again of who Jesus Christ is. And of all that he's done for you. Remember him. And then Jesus is telling us, here's the fifth one. Um, he's telling us to keep covenant. Because I, I tend to drift away from commitments. We, we, don't have a, a, we don't have a great view of covenants. Even we have generations today who kind of say, you know, you can't get commitments out of people today. We have trouble keeping promises, fulfilling vows, doing things that we said we would do. And I think about the simplicity of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew five thirty seven. he said, let your yes be if you said yes, do it. If you made a commitment, keep it. If you said a vow, fulfill it. If you signed a covenant, you're in it. Don't break it. Jesus said simply, if you said you'd do something, do it. Let your yes be yes. I think about today just in, in terms of marriages, and I, I think it would just be so helpful not to make a big deal of it, but if you're married, get the vows out that you made on your wedding day. Get those out at least once a year and read those vows to each other. You don't need to make a big, don't have people over and have a, like a vow renewal ceremony. Just do it. On your wedding day, you said yes. Let it be yes. But you might have forgotten along the way what you said yes to. Get it out. Sickness or health, richer or poorer, better or worse, all the things. You said all of it. Until when? Death. Death. That's an entire life. 
Let your yes be yes. Review, review those vows. Renew them to one another. Rehearse them again. This guy, Mark Jones, he gave some helpful words about covenants. He said, and I love this phrase, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. And that can be certainly in terms of human relationships. Then he talks about a divine covenant is one in which God binds himself by his own oath to keep his promises with conditions attached to that oath on the human side. God's always going to keep his promises, amen? God's always going to keep his promises, so his side of the covenant is locked in. God never needs to review it. We constantly need to review it because, well, our side of it has some conditions attached because we tend to drift and not keep our commitments. If the human party involved in a covenant with God does not keep the covenant conditions, there will be consequences. That's what we saw. Some are weak, some are sick, some have died. And Jesus said that this simple meal is a reminder of our oath-bound relationship to Jesus Christ. Verse 25, in the same way he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant, the oath-bound relationship between God and man. And knowing that God's going to keep his side of this, It should bring tremendous comfort to us when we come to the table and we remember God's keeping his covenant. God's keeping his promises. No matter what happens in my life, God's going to fulfill his part of the covenant. And that's awesome. All right, one more thing that Jesus is telling me at the table. Hope in him. Because I contend to despair. Life is crushing. Life is hard. I don't need to convince any of you of that. The relentlessness of difficulties, of pain, the way death stalks us and our loved ones means that we are never very far from despair. Um, But there is hope, and we know that. We as the followers of Christ know that. And the table speaks to that hope, the hope of Christ, the hope of eternity, the hope that, of, the, of that, that time in our lives and eternity where we'll be free completely of pain and sin and separation and death. The, the realities of life on this sin-tainted world will be in the distant past for us. And when we think about that and our responsibility as Christians, we should work as hard as we can in this world to make this world the best place it could possibly be, to bring the kingdom of God as best we can to this world, but not with some false notion that we're somehow creating a utopia down here. This world is destined for destruction and our hope is for what the preacher in Hebrews 11 said is a better country, a heavenly one. That's where our hope is. Hope beyond this world and beyond this life. And and look what Paul says, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the hope. We're gonna keep taking this table, keep eating this bread, keep drinking this cup until Jesus comes through the clouds. And by doing so, we're actually proclaiming. 
we're, we're proclaiming a word to a world that desperately needs to hear it. A word that is desperate. A world that is despairing of life and has no answers. We are declaring at this table, proclaiming to ourselves that hope, proclaiming to the people in this room because we do it together, and proclaiming to the world outside that it's only through the body and blood of Jesus Christ that hope can be obtained. And so there's no need to despair. At the table we hope in Christ, amen? At the table we hope in Christ. Now, what he was telling us and and how he said it is all through this table, and we've just seen all of these. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he inaugurated the table. It's actually such a beautifully, as I said, a beautifully simple ceremony because it engages, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, and the educators are going to love this, but it engages all five of our senses. And it respects the kind of learner that we happen to be, and there's all different kinds of learners in the room. For the auditory learner, we hear the words that are spoken, this is my body, and this is my blood. For the visual learner, we see the elements with our own eyes. And for the hands-on kinesthetic learner, we feel the bread, we smell, and we taste the cup. And Christ engages every part of who we are so that we might experience him in the fullest way possible and be reminded of all of these things that he's seeking to communicate to us through the table. The table, Christ is for us in every way. And we're going to take some time to respond to him at the table right now.